Hello, folks. Welcome to Notoriously Episcopalian, a podcast of sermons from me, Kelly Hudlow, an itinerant Episcopal priest in Alabama. Thanks for listening. This is a sermon for the 13th Sunday after Pentecost, August 27, 2023, offered at the Church of the Messiah in Heflin, Alabama. The principal text for the sermon is Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 through chapter 2, verse 10, the story of Moses and the midwives in Egypt. May I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning, we hear the opening chapter of the book of Exodus. And this moment is intended to move us from the age of the patriarchs, right? We just heard last week about, you know, Joseph and Jacob and brothers, right? So it's to move us from the age of the patriarchs to the age of Moses. This chapter begins Moses' origin story. It tells the unusual circumstances surrounding his birth and how he got his rather unusual name. See, Moses is an Egyptian name, right? A little strange, right? For such a big figure in the Hebrew faith to have an Egyptian name. And the meaning of it, as the text tells us, is the the one who is born. Here the text works to reclaim this meaning, right, from its typical Egyptian meaning by explaining that it relates to how Moses was drawn out of the water. It also sort of points us ahead in the story to what's going to happen when Moses leads the people of Egypt through the waters. But even though this is the beginning of Moses' story, our excerpt that we get this morning, two minor characters steal the show. We are told that several generations have passed since last week's reading. The Israelites are in Egypt. Joseph's generation has died, but the people of God had continued to grow in number. In the passing generations, a new Pharaoh is in charge, and everyone has forgotten the story of Joseph. Everybody has forgotten how they got to this place in Egypt. And the new Pharaoh, looking at the sort of increasing number of people, feels threatened. And so he decides to enslave them. And when enslaving the Israelites didn't work, he decides that a more extreme measure, namely the death of all male children, was what was needed. And now here comes the scene stealers. Shipra and Pua, two midwives who likely represent hundreds of midwives that would have been at work amongst the Israelites, Pharaoh's instruction is as simple as it is cruel that when a Hebrew child is born, if it is a boy, the midwife is to kill the baby. Perhaps in the first act of nonviolent civil disobedience as protest, the midwives refuse to do what Pharaoh has instructed. And when they are called to account for their disobedience, Shipra and Pua turn the Pharaoh's own ignorance and prejudice against him. Because, I mean, really, what does a pharaoh of Egypt know about babies being born? He clearly sees the Israelites as inferior, so the midwives use this to their advantage and explain that the Hebrew women have their children so quickly that the babies are born before they can get there. This act of defiance on behalf of the midwives comes because these two women fear God. They have faith in the God of Abraham. They have faith in the promise that God has made and been faithful to that in each generation the people of God would have life. And their faith in God 
And in God's promise was stronger than their fear of Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh, as you might imagine, is not interested in being ignored. And so when the midwives ruins his plan, he issues a murderous decree to all the peoples of Egypt to, if they find a Hebrew baby, to kill him. But things only get worse for Pharaoh. Now it's not just the midwives, Shipra and Pua, that choose to ignore him. The mother of Moses hides him away for three months, then puts him in a basket, places him in the river, and it seems her hope is, the hope of Moses' mother is that someone will find him and perhaps given his age would not suspect him to be a Hebrew child, right? He should not be alive. Moses' sister, not content to just let the fates have it, looks on as Moses floats down the water in a basket. And then it's Pharaoh's own daughter, guessing that Moses was the child of a Hebrew, still decides to rescue him. Conveniently, his sister is nearby, connects the daughter uh, with, with Moses' mother, and so Moses is raised in his parents' home, but then will soon move to Pharaoh's court. At every turn, Pharaoh is undermined again and again by women. Women whose social standing was inferior and whom Pharaoh did not consider a threat. Remember, he was not out to kill Hebrew girls, only boys. And now it is even his own daughter that ignores him and lies to him about where Moses came from. See, while Moses is going to be the hero of the book of Exodus, he does not get there without the faithful and defiant acts of Shipra and Pua. Without them, it's likely that Moses' mother never would have had a chance to float him down the river in the basket to begin with to be found by Pharaoh's rebellious daughter. Chipra and Pua show us how powerful the simple act of saying no to death can be. The beginning of liberation often comes in the form of saying no. And while Moses will take center stage soon enough, the actions of these two women were powerful enough that their story made it into the big book. And even their names are recorded. In more recent history... We still feel the reverberations of powerful and often overshadowed acts of defiance by women from a positions of apparent weakness that would prove to be springs of life and liberation and faith. Last night I went and watched a documentary that debuted at the Sidewalk Film Festival called The Philadelphia Eleven. Not sure if you've ever heard that in the Episcopal Church, but the Philadelphia 11 is an Episcopal story, and it's about the first 11 women ordained priests in the church 49 years ago. And when they were ordained, it was a scandal. In 1970, for the first time, in 1970, for the first time, women were allowed to be deputies at General Convention sort of the big gathering of the national church where they decide on policy and rules. And so women first participated in that body in 1970, and one of the first things that they attempted to do was to change the rules to expressly allow women to be ordained priests. Because up on that point, the rules were sort of silent on the issue, but custom and the bishops of the church had kept women from being ordained priests. They had allowed them to be ordained deacons, but not to be made priests. The measure failed in 1970. 
They present it again three years later at the next general convention, and it fails again even worse. And after this failed attempt, 11 women who had been serving as deacons were chosen to be ordained as priests. They ranged in age from their late 20s to their late 70s. Three retired bishops were recruited, and the ordination was set to be held in the only place that would have it, an African-American congregation in Philadelphia called the Church of the Advocate. So on July 29, 1974, the church was filled with supporters and a few protesters. The bishops, the church, the women had all received threats of violence leading up to the service. It was such a noteworthy event that all the major news networks had cameras inside the church to document the service. And they were ordained. But once that was done, the struggle was not done, right? It wasn't over. The bishops ruled that their ordinations were irregular and forbade them to function as priests in the church. But the Holy Spirit, let loose in Philadelphia, could not be put back in the bottle. Some of these women celebrated the Eucharist, sometimes at grand services, sometimes invited by male rectors in smaller churches who recognized the work of the Spirit. These invitations would soon put those male priests on trial. Everyone involved continued to receive death threats and harassment. It's not a monolithic story. Like, not everybody that supported women's priestly ordination agreed with the ordinations and the celebrations of the Eucharist by these women. And so they continued to work behind the scenes to garner support from deputies and bishops for the next general convention. To prove that it was not a one-off thing, in 1975, four more women were irregularly ordained priests. And in 1976, the General Convention finally changed the canons to expressly allow the ordination of women to the priesthood and as bishops. The 15 women irregularly ordained were recognized as priests, and this change would ripple throughout the church. The first woman elected to serve as a bishop came in 1988. Her name was Barbara Harris. She had served as the crucifer at that service in 1974 when the Philadelphia 11 were ordained. Here in Alabama, we ordained our first woman priest in 1980, and she would go on to become the first woman diocesan bishop in 1993 in Vermont. Today, the church estimates that about 40% of active priests, 40% of the priests standing in churches this morning, are women. It can be easy to forget that our path today began with an act of protest with 11 women named Meryl, Ayla, Allison, Emily, Carter, Suzanne, Marie, Jeanette, Betty, Katrina, and Nancy by these 11 women saying no to a system that wanted them to stay silent while saying yes to a God who called them to speak boldly. In our history books, women are often relegated to the position of supporting characters when they're remembered at all. But on this day, when we recall the powerful witness to God of the defiance of Shipra and Pua, I hope we can also not forget the women of our more recent history and hear an invitation to look for the powerful women at work in our current day. As we search for our own faithful response to the needs of the world, if we feel overwhelmed or think that what we have to offer is too small or it won't matter or that we're too young or that we're too old, remember the oldest of the Philadelphia 11 was 79. If we think that we're not enough to make a difference, 
Remember that the Apostle Paul writes that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And so as we heard today in our reading from Exodus, God chose the midwives and the women to confront Pharaoh first, to offer a holy no to Pharaoh and a powerful yes to God's promise of life. Amen.